From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn how students at UW-Milwaukee are being affected by cuts to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. We'll visit Component Brewing to learn about their limited edition beer, Zebra Hop, which aims to raise awareness about rare diseases. It's a double New England hazy IPA, and it uses advanced hop and yeast products to symbolize the advances in medical care research for finding a cure for rare disease. Plus, we'll learn how the Victory Garden Initiative is combating food insecurity by offering low-cost garden beds. The levels to purchase garden beds is based on income, so our focus is for low-income families to be able to purchase them at only $25. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Last December, the UW System Board of Regents accepted a deal to make changes to its DEI programs in exchange for funding for employee pay raises. UW System President Jay Rothman negotiated the deal with Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Voss had previously held up the $800 million in UW System funding for months over his concern that universities put too much focus on DEI, which stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. The deal froze hiring for DEI positions for three years and required the UW system restructure a third of DEI jobs to focus on success for all students. As a note to listeners, WUWM is a service of UW-Milwaukee. WUWM employees are affected by the pay raise referred to in this report. Lake Effect's Excret Nunez speaks to UW-Milwaukee students about their reaction to the deal and what DEI programs actually look like on campus. At schools like UWM, DEI programs support a broad range of students who are underrepresented in higher education. That includes veterans, students with disabilities, LGBTQ plus students, and students of color. But Republican lawmakers, such as Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, see DEI as racially divisive and part of left-wing indoctrination. That's really what DEI is. For people on the left, it's become their new religion. They no longer go to church on Sunday, but boy, are they trying to make sure that everybody is evangelized to uh, on campus, that there's only one acceptable viewpoint. After Voss and the UW system reached the deal to restructure some DEI jobs, Voss promised it was a first step to eliminate DEI initiatives throughout the state. The targeting of DEI programs is especially concerning for students of color. Victor Chavez is a junior at UWM. He says he frequently visits the school's cultural centers, including the Roberto Hernandez Center and the Black Student Cultural Center. The centers provide academic and social support for underrepresented students. Chavez describes his reaction to the UW deal targeting DEI. When I did find out that it was approved, it did hurt me a little bit just because, you know, I frequent the Roberto Hernandez Center and the Blackstone Culture Center, but all these culture centers are so important to students because a lot of them are a place for, not even just for culture, but just for like similar backgrounds and for a lot of us it's like the third place for our daily routine if you don't know what that is third place is like okay you have school work you have home where you relax and your third place where you can socialize 
And for us, it's this place. And it's such an amazing place that I'm so lucky that I get to experience it. And I hate to think that years after when all of us are gone and we still do our best to support this place, that it's not gonna be enough and there are kids in the future who are not gonna be able to experience like what we've been able to experience. Another student who didn't wanna share her name says UWM's cultural centers have been a highlight of her college experience. She says one major reason she transferred from UW Oshkosh to UW Milwaukee is because of the support UWM offers to students of color like herself. If Voss follows through on his promise to get rid of more DEI initiatives, she says she worries about how that would impact diversity-based scholarships. I am barely going to be able to pay for this semester, and like we talked about before, I know I'm not the only one that might not be able to continue their education if this change actually, like, takes place and, like, a lot of scholarships and grants and opportunities are taken away from us. And I think that's going to lead to where we were before, just the same people getting the same privileges and the same people who are not going to have a voice. Another student I spoke with is a freshman and veteran. He didn't want to share his name because of the controversy surrounding the DEI issue. He says he frequently visits the Black Student Cultural Center and the Military and Veterans Resource Center at UWM. He says the Black Student Cultural Center helped him find community on the predominantly white campus. I've been in areas where African Americans have been the majority and whites have been the minority. And it wasn't until then where they understood the power and inclusion and, you know, everybody having their own personal areas. But when you are the majority, especially in America, it's so easy to look over the needs of others. People don't see it as a big deal, but when you go through backhanded racism, when you're in a group project and you're the only black kid and you feel like you're being, you're being mistreated by your partners. And not only is this a place to where we can come, we can speak to advisors to fix situations like that, but we can also come and get away. I, I, I don't know. It's just, it is very disappointing, but I'm not surprised because it's really just another day being a minority and people will never get it, but it's just, it's really just another day. It's really just one more thing we can't have. It's one more thing they have to take away. It's unclear what DEI jobs and what programs will change under the legislative deal. In a statement to WUWM, UW System spokesman Mark Pitch says campuses have until 2026 to restructure DEI positions. UW System President Jay Rothman has also said no employees will lose their jobs under the deal and that he's committed to upholding diversity efforts. When we reached out to Speaker Voss for a comment on this story, his team directed us to a December 8th statement, which says in part, Our caucus objective has always been aimed at dismantling the bureaucracy and division related to DEI and reprioritizing our universities toward an emphasis on what matters, student success and achievement. Victor Chavez, the junior at UWM, says he worries about what the school might look like in years to come. 
I would be proud of the work that I've done here, but I wouldn't be proud of what it becomes if the restructuring, which I think the restructuring basically means less resources available. Like I've helped paint these walls. Like I've helped choose out decorations. Like I've really helped to make sure that this space is welcoming to a lot of people along with my other friends. And if I come back in like 10 years and this is like three offices and like, I don't know, a bunch of empty chairs and boxes for storage, it's gonna break my heart because it's just like all these great memories and all the great effort we put into this was just like, it was just for us and nobody else. And I don't know, that feels like very selfish and like such a definite event to something that I feel like should last as long as this university is open. Chavez also says he thinks scaling back DEI programs will only hurt UW schools more as they struggle to increase enrollment and funding. That was Lake Effect's Excret Nunez speaking with three students at UW-Milwaukee, who all use the school's cultural centers. They shared their thoughts about the DEI restructuring deal the UW System Board of Regents approved last December. As a note to listeners, WUWM is a service of UW-Milwaukee. WUWM employees are affected by the pay raises referred to in this report. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, J.R. It's a good day. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So we're going to start with a story that you broke on Friday that the bipartisan Wisconsin Ethics Commission is recommending local district attorneys pursue felony charges against one of former President Trump's political action committees and other Republicans in the state. They say it uncovered a scheme to evade campaign finance law during the 2022 midterm elections. What's the alleged scheme? Essentially, the allegations that they were trying to find a way to evade the limit on campaign contributions from individuals to an assembly candidate so remember in 2022, Adam Steen uh, ran for the assembly against Robin Voss, the speaker. Uh, he first lost him in a primary about about 260 votes, then mounted a write-in campaign after that that was unsuccessful. But, and he was backed by Trump, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And individuals can give up to $1,000 to a candidate. But there were people who said they asked Adam Steen, hey, how can I help you? And his answer was to basically direct money to the Florence County GOP and what Essentially, the scheme was is these people who were looking to give money above and beyond the $1,000 would write checks to the Florence County GOP. They would put in the memo line the number 63, which is the district that Voss represents in the assembly. That would be a sign that money should be then funneled back to Steen's campaign. Now, it's also illegal to earmark a contribution to a party to help a candidate. Likewise, Save America, the joint fundraising operation of Donald Trump, one of his main fundraising arms, uh, made clear was going to send 5000 bucks each to three county parties. That money was going to be sent back to Steen through the Florence County GOP. Uh, in fact, one of the county parties, I went and looked at their campaign finance report filed the state. It was earmarked or it was clearly marked on this donation that it was going to go to the Florence County GOP to help Adam Steen's writing campaign. Uh, so they were not really hiding it, what they were trying to do, but 
The complaint was filed. They did an investigation. And now they are referring all this to chart to local district attorneys saying, look, these guys committed felonies in our opinion, but it's up to you to investigate and possibly file charges against the folks involved. Okay, and this was all because Trump was upset with Robin Voss because Voss was refusing to take steps to overturn the 2020 elections or so he supported Steen in the 2022 midterms. The Washington Post reports that if the district attorneys that the Ethics Commission referred its recommendations to do not act within 60 days, the commission has the authority to refer its request for prosecution to Attorney General Josh Call, who is a Democrat. What if the DAs refuse charges? Well, then, yeah, the option for the Ethics Commission is then it could uh, refer to DOJ. There also could be an option to go to a neighboring uh, DA. For example, one of the district attorneys who was received a referral as a member of the county party and said, hey, I've got a conflict here. I can't, I, ethically, I can't handle this. So the Ethics Commission has the option to look somewhere else to refer it. So there's that also, by the way, these DAs have a 40-day window for the first referral to basically report back to the Ethics Commission about how it's progressing, if it's, not, if it's resolved. That four-day window closes right before our primary, April 2nd, for president. So that'll be interesting to see those reports come in if they do, right before you go vote for presidential primaries. But yeah, there, there are options here in case the DAs say they don't want to do something with it. And to break this down, just for people who are completely unfamiliar with campaign finance law, as you said, Wisconsin law limits individual donations to candidates. It does not cap how much political parties can give. But as you've said, and as the commission notes, county parties can't skirt those rules by accepting money and then earmarking it for a specific candidate, right? Yeah, and actually, uh, Robin Voss, the assembly speaker, helped co-author this law back around 2015 that said, we will no longer as a state impose a limit on how much you can give to a county party then therefore there also is no limit how much those parties can transfer to political candidates. It, interestingly enough, uh, ended up coming back to bite Republicans in the butt because Ben Wicklow, state party chair for Democrats, has been a phenomenal fundraiser, and he helped take in big checks to then send money to, to Tony Evers, who is an excellent partner with Wicklow on raising money. They really outraised Republicans in the gubernatorial race in 2022, the state Supreme Court race in 2023, and here you had people trying to use the law that Voss authored, co-authored, against him um, to find a way around the campaign finance limits. Obviously, this was not a legal way to do it if the allegations are true, but they used that law that Robin authored trying to find a way to funnel more money to Adam Steen. Who, you know, he was part of this group that has targeted Robin Voss because he has refused to heed calls from President, former President Trump to you know, overturn the 2020 election, which we know is not possible from various attorneys we've talked to. Robin has been an, an opponent of Donald Trump, and it's generated these opponents who were trying to go after him in various ways, and Steen was one of the ones who tried to beat him in a primary in 2022. Is it arguable to say that there was something legal about earmarking it for a candidate, or that if they wouldn't have earmarked it to a candidate and just left it up to the county party to give whatever money it wanted to to Steen, then that would have been legal? Well, there's an interesting one, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, the CEO. He is, uh, he, they looked at him, uh, the Ethics Commission did, their investigators. He gave $4,000, the Florence County GOP, but there was no probable cause or nothing to support probable cause that he intended that money to be sent back to Steen. So they did not recommend him for charges. There's an example of, you could give money to a county party, uh, whatever money you want, as um, long as it's not earmarked, you're not in trouble, at least with that example. 
You're tuned into Capital Notes. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com. So switching to redistricting, Governor Tony Evers has signed new state legislative district maps into law after his version of those maps was passed by the GOP-led legislature. Where can people find information on their new districts? Well, if you're looking for a resource, we actually have a, a redistricting page at our website. You can go look at some of these districts, how they've changed. We have interactive maps that show where current incumbents live compared to the new lines. There are a number of pairings in both the Senate and the Assembly that change things. The Elections Commission will now begin to take these new lines and implement them. They had hoped to have them by March 15th. They got them a few weeks early. So the key deadline is April 15th. That's when candidates can begin circling nomination papers for office. They know those lines in place then, so you're gathering the, the right signatures. They can be checked against the database where these folks live. Um, it's going to be an interesting few weeks for the Capitol. The guess around uh, the Capitol from the people I've talked to is that there's going to be a little bit of chaos, especially for Republicans the next few weeks, because a number were drawn into different seats from what they are right now. Um, they have to figure out, one, where are they going to run? Two, will they be running against a fellow Republican? And three, when do they have to move? They have to move. Um, there is a state law that says you must be an elector of the state for one year and reside in your district for the Assembly of the Senate when you assume the office. The question, though, is for somebody like a Rob Coles in Green Bay is, what's that exact deadline? Because Rob Coles has represented the second Senate district since 1987. He was joined into the 30th district with Eric Wimberger, a fellow Republican, and Andre Jacques. Coles told me last week that he plans to move to the second district, the new one, and run there because much of the territory he represented in the second has still there in that district. He just his house is now in the 30th district. But his question is, when do I have to be a resident? When do I have to move? Is it like after the election, just the day he takes office, if he wins, or is it some other type? So that's a, a tough question for some folks. And two. The housing market's not great for buyers right now, great for sellers, not for buyers. Interest rates are higher than they were before a few years ago, so it really is giving some Republicans heartburn about, okay, what, what do I do? Is this really worth it? Is it worth a job that pays less than 60000 bucks a year to upend my life and move? Andre Jacques is another good example of the impact. He was elected in 2022 to an odd-numbered district. All the ones up this fall are even-numbered. There is a belief, an argument, that uh, from the the Attorney General's Office from 1983, that if you are in a district that you're elected to, and the lines change during your term, you retain that office for the full term. So for Andre, if that theory is correct, he would remain the senator for the first Senate district through at least the 2026 election. Now, the question would become, what then? Would he have to move before the election? Would he have to move just the day if he, if he won re-election in 2026? What's the requirement? There are other, several other Republicans in the same situation. Howard Markline in Spring Green is the 17th district center. He was joining the 14th. It's an interesting dynamic for those guys to know, okay, I don't live in my district the way it's going to be drawn, but if I want to retain it, I'm going to have to move eventually. Yeah, so you've just been explaining some of the challenges that Republicans are facing fielding candidates or figuring out where their candidates are going to be with the new maps. We actually have a listener question via our election survey, which you can access at wuwm.com slash election survey. So this, this listener wrote in asking, with the new districts in Wisconsin, how will Democrats find candidates to run in the elections? They write, in some of these districts, it's been so long since Democrats have had a chance. So many seats have not been contested. Do you have any idea about that? Yeah, it's a great question. 
for Democrats, um, they've been kind of operating under the assumption that there's going to be a new map for a while. And remember, January 12th was a deadline for all of the parties to submit their proposed maps. So they've had an idea what the options, the possibilities were for more than a month now, and they've been recruiting people in kind of regions with the idea of, okay, you might fit in this district or this district. We'll see what lines are drawn. Um, so they've been kind of preparing for that. Now for Democrats, you know, look, these maps provide a path to majority, but not a guarantee, especially in the state Senate. Unless Republicans have an absolute nightmare of an election in November, like the bottom drops out for the presidential nominee, that kind of thing, there are really only three, maybe four seats in the Senate that are going to be pickup opportunities for Democrats. Best case, sorry, even if they won all you know, four, that still have Republicans at 18 seats, which is the majority in the Senate. So you're not going to flip the Senate this fall. You need 2026 as well and have everything go your way to get there. The assembly's different. Um, there's a, a path there, but it's a matter of, you know, resources, candidate quality, message. You know, what issues are going to dominate this fall? Is it going to be immigration, taxes, abortion? You know, what's going to be the thing that drives voters come November? That's really a, a key question because I have these benchmarks of these seats, you know, from the top of the ticket, how they've done before. But past... Uh, Performance isn't a guarantee of anything. So if you, but if you look at that past performance, I start with 47 assembly seats that are about 55% or better for Republicans, about 41 at the same mark for Democrats. So you could argue that there are like 11 seats that really matter, that are really going to be the swing seats this fall that determine things. And that's, that's where the focus is going to be. And now there's some caveats to that, though. One of those 55% Democratic seats is represented by uh, Todd Novak, a Republican from uh, down in Dodgeville, he's outrun the top of the ticket before. Can he do it again? You know, 55-plus is a tough seat to do it in, but he's done it before. Can that, is that mountain too high, though, this time? Those are like examples of even though you start with these new numbers, these better seats, there are no guarantees for either side this fall that this new map is going to lead to a drastically different number. It should, it should narrow the, the difference at the very least in the Assembly for Democrats, but there's no guarantee they'll win the majority even with these new maps. All right, a lot to keep an eye on. Uh, thanks so much for the analysis, JR, and thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross of WIS Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect. And we want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. Later in the show, we'll learn about the Victory Garden Initiative and its annual Garden Blitz. But first, we'll head to Component Brewing to learn about a special beer called Zebra Hop, made in honor of Rare Disease Day. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. February 29th is Rare Disease Day. Despite the name, rare diseases are not as rare as you may think. They affect one in ten Americans, and more than half are children. 
One of these diseases directly impacts local brewery owner Jonathan Kowalski and his family. His son, Mac, was diagnosed with Milan syndrome shortly after Kowalski opened Component Brewing five years ago. Mac had three brain surgeries all before he turned one. Because the number of patients battling a rare disease are small, expertise and research funds are lacking. So to help increase awareness, Kowalski crafted a limited edition beer called Zebra Hop that'll be released on Thursday by Component and over a dozen other local breweries. The proceeds of Zebra Hop will benefit the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Ahead of the beer's official release, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski went to Component Brewing to speak with Kowalski and learn more. So tell me about your son, Mac. What is he dealing with and, and what are you dealing with as a family that requires three doctor's appointments a week? Uh, Mac has a rare genetic disorder called Milan syndrome. Um, he is one of 200 in the world that have this rare disease. And with Milan syndrome, he has multiple disabilities, uh, physical and um, cognitive disabilities as well. So before you discovered this diagnosis of Milan syndrome, Mac had three surgeries all before even turning one, and he was diagnosed finally at 18 months. And I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to not know what was happening and just to know that your young son was in pain. Yeah, my wife and I, I think we both kind of like blacked out <laughs> throughout that part of our lives. Um, but yes, it, it was terrifying and his, you know, at the time he was diagnosed with hydrocephalus and that's just pressure on the brain caused by excess spinal fluid not draining down into a spinal column. And uh, we thought that, you know, once he got his shunt put in, that would take care of the, the hydrocephalus and he would just kind of continue as, as our first child or as any other child would. Um, and the shunt so, relieves pressure? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's like a, it's like a valve in the top of, or put in the top of your head, and then there's a tube that goes down into his abdomen that will allow the excess spinal fluid to get absorbed back into his body. Okay. So around this time that you were going to Children's trying to figure out what was wrong with Mac, you also opened this brewery, Component Brewing, around the same time. Uh, you mentioned you blacked out, but yeah. <laughs> maybe the brewery was the maybe the brewery was the reason, not the <laughs> not the surgeries. <laughs> so I imagine, like first, you're trying to go through all these tests, try to figure out what's wrong with your son. Um, how difficult was it for you to not only find resources but to navigate a healthcare system where the doctors weren't even quite sure what was happening? Um, I will give a lot of credit to my wife. Um, she was the one who recognized that, you know, he wasn't just a colicky baby and we needed to just let him grow out of it. She had the, the mom intuition to keep pushing the healthcare system to do more testing. Um, we saw a lot of different specialists and after he had a full brain MRI, uh, the neurosurgery team at Children's was like, yeah, he has hydrocephalus and needs to have the surgeries. Uh, the first surgery he had was uh, for what's called a Chiari malformation. It's like the bone keel in the back of your head was not allowing his brain to sit properly. Um, so it was kind of like his skull was not the right size for his brain. Uh, so he had part of his skull removed so his brain would fit properly in his skull. 
and we thought, okay, maybe that will, maybe that was the cause of the hydrocephalus, and that'll fix it. And then that didn't. Um, so then he had another brain surgery to try to fix it from within, basically, without the shunt. Um, then that's more of a uh, experimental or not as high of a success rate surgery. So we, we wanted the shunt to be like the last last resort, and that didn't work. So then the third surgery was the shunt. After that, you know, obviously he had a lot of follow-ups, and um, he was still kind of like lagging behind his peers in uh, development. So that's what led us to go to genetics and get the genetic testing to get the diagnosis of Milan syndrome. Once he was diagnosed, what were your next steps, you and your wife, and with the team of doctors? You mentioned he's one of 200 in the world, so I imagine there's some ground, but not a lot. Yeah, between one and 200, or sorry, two and 300-ish people in the world. Um, you know, there's not a ton of testing out there, so there's, there's more out there, but that's how many have been diagnosed. Um, but once he got his diagnosis, it was trying to you know, work with the team at Children's and gather as much information as we can and continue to get him the, the help he needed moving forward in life. Um, he does PT, OT, he's done water therapy, horse therapy, so we really try to, we'd really try to push him to continue to develop. Because the patient numbers battling a rare disease is so small compared to most maladies people go to the doctors for, expertise and research funds are really lacking but really needed, especially with yep. families like yours. So this is where Zebra Hop comes in, right? How'd you learn about this and why'd you want to get Component involved? So since we started the brewery, I wanted to try to use beer for good. We've done a few different beers for causes before. There was one for wildfires in California, one for COVID. Um, there's been a few that we've done. And, you know, that kind of made me think like, hey, we could use our corner of the world to help out what's important to us. So since we started in 2018, we were, we were brewing a beer, like, to raise awareness for Milan syndrome and realized that, you know, it's, it's 200 people in the world and it might not get the attention that we would like it to have. Um, the reception was great, but you know we wanted to, to make it bigger. So this year, we started working with NORD, the National Organization for Rare Disorders, and changed the name to Zebra Hop, and invited all breweries to join in with us to brew it. And we did get about uh, 20 breweries to brew it, and we're all going to be helping raise awareness and funds for those with rare diseases. Can you explain why it's called Zebra Hop? Uh, it's called Zebra Hop because the zebra is the official animal of people with rare disease, and we wanted to pay tribute to that. So is this Zebra Hop something that you crafted on your own? It's your recipe, or is this um, a recipe that other breweries you got involved are ad-libbing for themselves, but it's all going to the same cause? Um, it's all going to the same cause, and this is a recipe that I came up with, and it's a double... New England Hazy IPA, and it uses advanced hop and yeast products to symbolize the advances in medical care or medical research for finding a cure for rare disease. When I reached out to breweries, I mentioned that, you know, you can make it as unique as you want, or you can follow the recipe that I have on the website. 
but I just urge them to use advanced techniques to try to symbolize the advances in, in research. So I, I, I do hope that people, I mean, I know that people are coming up with their own and selfishly, like, I want to try all the different ones. So Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to try them. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You mentioned advanced ingredients and such to reflect advancements in medicine. So how does this hop compare to, like, say, your typical IPA that you'd get? So before these new products came out, it was basically like you would use standard what's called T90 hop pellets. Um, and it's basically just like they take the hop and they like dry it out and compress it and then put it into a pellet that kind of looks like rabbit food and then you throw it in the beer. And since then, there's been new products like where they would take the, like the plant matter out and just get like the concentrated oils from the hops. Or now there's new hop products that are like liquefied that you can use. And with like the yeast, there's new strains of yeast that help like boost the hop flavor and stuff. So there's been a lot of advancements in the last few years with these new products to just, you know, make the beer more unique and just more intensely flavored. So you reached out to other local breweries to make this collaborative beer. Can you yeah. share a bit about how you think it reflects on the local brewery culture that is here in the Milwaukee area? It's very collaborative. Um, I know we're all competitors, but we're definitely more collaborators than competitors. Everybody is here for the same goal to help, you know, make craft beer more prominent, you know, maybe get some people to switch from the big Budweiser to, you know, try craft beer. But yeah, it's it, there's a lot of great people in the industry and I'm very happy and, and humbled by how many breweries did want to do this with us. So you mentioned you have been making some sort of brew to raise awareness over the years since you opened, but what does Mac think about this particular zebra hop? Does, is he proud that his dad is making this for him and other kids and people that battle rare diseases? Yeah, when, um, you know, when he meets, he has met a couple other people with Milan syndrome and he's, he's happy to meet them and he's like, hey, they're like me. And I don't know if he really understands the concept of the beer yet but he's learning more about beer at age six so yeah. <laughs> we might have to have to watch that but you know if once in a while he'll say hey dad you want a beer and I'll be like sure and he's like ipa and I'm like, yep ipa so he's he's starting to get it <laughs> well does he get excited to see the zebra on this latest can um, I don't know if I've actually shown it to him. We didn't get the labels in until a couple days ago, okay. so I'll have to bring one home and, and show it to him. The zebra does have his, his signature glasses on, so I'll have to show him that. He'll think that's pretty cool. I love that. So how's Mac doing today? What would you like to share about what life is like for your six-year-old? Um, he's great. I mean, we to, earlier today we were just at Children's Main Campus doing a, a weight check and... Um, we were concerned about him not gaining enough weight, but it was a good a good appointment. It, he gained a couple pounds, but you know, other than the the doctor's appointments, he he plays a lot of hockey. Um, he loves that's his favorite thing to do. When we go around town, everybody knows him. I don't know them, but he knows them, <laughs> and so we'll be at the at the quick trip, his favorite place, and. A kid will come up and just hug him and say, hey, Mac, how are you? And so that, that's awesome. I, 
he plays on the the hockey the specials um shaw specials pirates so he just went to his first tournament but yeah he's busy he's a busy busy kid <laughs> yeah do you have any advice or lessons to share for maybe other parents or families either dealing with a rare disease in their family or those in the thick of it trying to find a diagnosis um i would say probably like reach out to other parents that have went through similar things i know they're very rare diseases but there's a lot of them so having a rare disease is not actually that rare there's 30 million americans that are suffering from rare disease children's has been a great resource nord can be a great resource um, so there are resources out there for you to get more information and connect with like-minded people We've been hearing some labeling happening in the background for the Zebra Hop. Um, what does it mean to you to be able to use your brewery and your craft to help raise awareness? I think it's really cool. It's like it's bringing you know my passion of brewing together with another thing that I'm passionate about, trying to help my son that has the rare disease. So it's cool to like be able to put both of them together and, and see the end product. <laughs> Well, and I imagine it helps you feel like you're being proactive, but in a different way. Right. I mean, it's it's our it's our corner of the world. It's it's we're able to. It's cool that we have this platform that we're able to do this, and hopefully, you know, people will buy Zebra Hop, and maybe they'll take it to a party, and somebody be like, "Hey, what is that?" And maybe it'll spark conversation, and you know, create more awareness. Uh, there's a QR code on the can that'll take you to the website that'll give you more information and there's also a form on there to donate if you choose to. Excellent. Well, Jonathan, thank you for having me at Component and for sharing more about your and your family's story. Thanks for coming. Thanks for supporting local and supporting Rare. Jonathan Kowalski is one of the owners of Component Brewing and a rare disease dad. His new limited edition Zebra Hop Hazy IPA will be released on February 29th, Rare Disease Day. There's a release party at Component Brewing the same day, and you can find more information about it at wuwm.com. Kowalski spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. And did you know that you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up, we'll explore the Victory Garden Initiative's annual Garden Blitz. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. As the weather slowly warms, you may be starting to think of your gardening plans for this year. If you're looking for a low-cost garden bed, the Victory Garden Initiative has you covered. As part of their annual garden blitz, Victory Garden Initiative will install a bed at a location of your choosing and will also provide complimentary soil, seeds, and information to help you get started on your gardening journey. 
Sinceri Dixon is the Volunteer Programs Coordinator and Blitz Coordinator at Victory Garden Initiative. She spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods about this year's Garden Blitz and tells some personal stories about gardening and food security. So I want to get to the big news. The Victory Garden Box Blitz is back. But for those that are familiar, this is huge news and kind of an unofficial reminder that spring is on its way. But for those who are unfamiliar, what is the Blitz? When is the Blitz? Why is it important? All of that. So the... Victory Garden Annual Milwaukee Blitz is a program that we put together here. It'll take place from April 20th to May 4th. During this time, we have a goal of building 500 raised garden beds throughout Milwaukee County. It's important because we are educating people on the importance of growing their own food. We are creating a more sustainable, equitable food system, and we are creating opportunities for the community to come together. So for the Blitz, we do need hundreds of volunteers to organize to help make it happen. You can look on our website if you're interested in volunteering to fill out our Blitz volunteer registration. And most importantly, people that are interested in purchasing a garden bed, our registration form will go live on our website on Monday, February 26th. So keep an eye out for that. The levels to purchase garden beds is based on income. So our focus is for low income families to be able to purchase them at only $25. And the raised garden bed includes eight by four foot untreated pine. We install it in your very own backyard, and we fill it with one cubic yard of Blue Ribbon organic soil. We will also provide seeds for your garden bed, as well as follow-up gardening mentorship for people that are new to gardening and have questions on how to get started. You mentioned the Garden Blitz is a way of combating food insecurity, and I want to I want, I want to ask you, for you personally, have you always been interested in this issue of food insecurity or combating food insecurity? And if not, when did that light bulb moment came on that, that told you, this is what I meant to do? Um, I believe that I have always had an interest in fighting food insecurity. I'm born and raised in Milwaukee. I grew up in the 53206 neighborhood, um, which is an underserved community. Again, that's also a food desert. So I feel like I, because of my upbringing, I was just hyper aware of these issues throughout my whole life. And I also, as I've gotten older, have always known that community work was something that I was interested in. My background is um, in sociology. I went to UW-Milwaukee and have a bachelor's degree in sociology. So I really care about working with people. I care about community organization and social justice issues because as far as I'm concerned, I think that food insecurity and food deserts are a result of systemic racism in Milwaukee. Um, The lack of investment in certain communities is very apparent. So I've always been passionate about addressing these issues and being part of a greater good that can help amend these issues. On that idea of mending issues of food insecurity, can you talk about the history of the Victory Garden Initiative's uh, Blitz and how how it came to be and what it has become since that you know that first Blitz? So, Victory Garden Initiative began in two thousand nine, and um, it was a very small group of people that organized the very first Blitz. And in the first 
year that they did the blitz in 2009, they built 35 garden beds in just a single day. And so since then, um, this will be the 15th year of the blitz. So in the, in the time since the inception of Victory Garden Initiative, over 7,000 raised garden beds have been built throughout the city of Milwaukee. And so with each garden bed, you know, you're providing residential properties, schools, churches, and businesses with the education around the importance of growing your own food. So it's it creates generational change. It creates a lifestyle change, um, and it impacts the city as a whole because people spread the word and you know, we've realized the reach that we have by the community support that we continue to receive because each blitz brings together hundreds of volunteers. And so the fact that we have that showing of support really speaks to the importance of our program in the city. All right. Now we get to the fun part. So I'm going to ask a few rapid fire questions. I'm looking for kind of quick answers to them. They can be one, they don't have to be one word answers, but, but, you know, quick answers. So yeah, you ready? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what was the first plant that you remember growing on your own? I think the first plant that I remember growing on my own was a tomato plant. So when I was a kid on Ninth and Locust, my mom had a small garden in the backyard and she had a bit of a green thumb. And so that's when she first started getting me involved in learning how to garden. Yeah, I know tomatoes for me were my first light bulb moment with gardening, which I'm pretty recent to it. I'm a couple years in myself, but it was, yes, tasting a fresh, mm-hmm. fresh grown tomato is like, oh, I actually like tomatoes. I didn't know that about myself. But um, on the topic of tomatoes, my next question, what have you personally grown more of, tomatoes or potatoes? <laughs> Definitely tomatoes. They are much more abundant, and I think potatoes are a little bit more challenging. (laughs) Very fair. Next question, uh, what is a notable failure that you've had in the garden? Um, Maybe something that never grew, or you you pulled the plant you were meaning to grow when you were weeding, or, you know, rabbits got to the food that you were growing first, something like that. And I'll I'll give you some time to think. I'll start. uh, I'll share one of mine. So, I um, rent a plot in a community farm with a friend, and we uh, planted a strawberry sprout last year. And you know, it was it was small, and uh, but it, it's doing well. We didn't, you know, it's it's fine. It's going to be in its second year. It's doing great. However, it only had two uh, fruits last year, two strawberries. And so my friend got the first one. I saved. I was saving the second one for myself after about an hour's worth of weeding. It's like this will be a nice treat afterwards. Um, but then, done with the weeding, I go back to look at it, and at some point, I stepped it, stepped on it, just oh, no. smashed it straight into the ground. Um, so hopefully, we'll have. I'll taste some strawberries that we grow this year. But last year, yeah, no dice. Um, so this is probably my biggest failure in, in within a garden bed. Um, but uh, yours, no failures that you've had gardening i was gonna say strawberries (laughs) so we are on the same same wavelength yes um a very relatable uh result strawberries were very hard for me to grow this last summer um was a new apartment of mine and so this is my first year on the east side and i attempted to grow strawberries and that was the rabbits and squirrels favorite plant so once i planted them i came back to check on them and noticed a hole in my garden bed where they had been planted was totally gone and uprooted. So I also had a strawberry failure. (laughs) 
Yeah, that rabbit tax is brutal sometimes. <laughs> but on the flip side, what's a notable success that you've had in the garden? One of the most memorable successes was when I first grew cucumbers. Um, so I had to learn that cucumbers like to climb. So once I built them um, like a fenced area to climb up, I got some of the biggest cucumbers that I've ever seen. And I was very, very proud of that. I have a photo of me holding one like a baby. It was that big. <laughs> have you ever doubted that something small like maintaining a garden, like a, a victory garden um, boxes, I think four feet by eight feet, if I remember right. So, you know, it's not going to feed you for the whole year. It is kind of a small step towards food security, right? But you've been in this work a long time. Have you ever doubted that something small like maintaining a garden really matters? I mean, you clearly believe it now, but has that always been the case? I personally have always believed that the impact of a garden bed matters because even on the micro scale of the individual level, I believe that it helps people's mental health and it helps their physical health to get outside in the sunshine. You're learning how to grow food yourself. And so that's impactful because it gives you something to be proud of. And you can see it from seedling to bringing it inside and preparing it on your kitchen table. So I think that that's a huge impact in and of itself. And again, it's a lifestyle change and it's a generational change because it creates environmental stewardship for the long run. My last question for you, what are you growing in your Victory Garden Blitz box this year? I will be attempting strawberries again. Okay. <laughs> and um, I love to grow kale because it's very versatile. I love to make it in salads. I throw it in smoothies. And I always grow tomatoes. And I will be growing different herbs, and I especially like to grow smudge, or I'm sorry, sage. I like to grow sage because I make my own smudge sticks out of sage. Well, Sincerely, thank you um, so much for joining me on Lake Effect, and I appreciate your time. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk more about the annual Milwaukee Blitz. Sinceri Dixon is the Volunteer Programs Coordinator and Blitz Coordinator at Victory Garden Initiative. She spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods. You can find more information about how to have a Victory Garden bed delivered to your home or volunteer to install garden beds throughout Milwaukee County at wuwm.com. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll talk with a legal expert about Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin's petition to the state Supreme Court to consider if abortion is protected by Wisconsin's constitution. Plus, we'll look at our future with artificial intelligence and how we can start incorporating it into our work. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.